in the last 20 minutes of the trading day in Jakarta, the price started to go down. It started to go down a lot. And my partner called me over. Dealer's hopping up and down. And he's saying, what's, what's going on here? And I'm, I'm checking the wires. I'm checking. There's no news. I'm calling everybody. They're like, no, no, no. They're, they've flown to Singapore. The money has already been moved from Malaysia to a Singaporean bank. So it's there in Singapore for the closing. It's going to happen. And so I didn't pay attention to the market signals, even though the market came off by 25% in the last 20 minutes of the day. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Paul Sheehan. Paul, are you ready to rock? I am definitely ready to rock, Andrew. Let's do it. So Paul is the CEO of Melmont Brothers, based in Hong Kong and covering emerging markets in Asia, Europe, and Africa. He has more than 25 years experience in financial institutions, starting as a central banker with the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Subsequently, he was a managing director and head of Asian financial institutions for Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, and ING Bearings, and a founder and CEO of Thaddeus Capital, an institutional fund manager. He continues to advise governments, sovereign wealth funds, and multilateral institutions. Paul, a U.S. citizen, was educated at the State University of New York, Yale, and Harvard. And we go a long way back in our analysis of banks. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Uh, take a minute, Paul, and fill in any further tidbits about your life. That's right. Great to see you again, Andrew. As, as you said, we used to work together back in the uh, back in the good old Barings days, roaming around Asia looking at banks. And I think both of us had a similar experience in that we said, uh, hey, we give a lot of good advice to other people. We really think our advice is good. Maybe we should take more of it and uh, go into business on our own. And so we did with, uh, you know, it seems generally decent results. But of course, as we'll talk about today, things are very different when you have your own money and your own client's money on the line than when you're just giving advice and you can say, I, I reiterate my view and it's good and you win some and you lose some. You, you, learn about, you learn a lot about temperament when you move from the sell side to the buy side. Yeah, so ladies and gentlemen in the audience, we were both on the sell side as in we were selling our ideas, but as opposed to the buy side where they are buying the stocks and really putting on the, the real risk. So yeah, things are so different on the other side. So now, it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Well, exactly. It's usually the times when you are feeling the smartest, when you are just about to do the dumbest things. And that's why always humility is a very, a very efficient good in markets. And if you do not have a sufficient supply of, of humility close at hand, a, a supply will spring up and the market will provide you with some. And that is what happened to me. Cast, cast your mind back to the good old days of 2008. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, sure, 2008 was a terrible year. It was GFC. Of course, a lot of people blew up and, and lost money. And actually, it was a pretty decent year for me overall. I, I made money. I kept my, kept my streak alive through 2008. 
I wouldn't say made a lot of money, but making a little money is better than losing a little money. Wide gulf between those two. However, long about the first quarter of 2008, I got myself into a situation. I almost lost my entire firm based on this, which is why it comes to mind easily. The worst investment I ever made, and it could have been a lot worse than it was. I'll tell you the story of how I came to lose about $37 million in 15 minutes, which given that I was running about $500 million at, uh, at that point with, with my uh, team and partners, was pretty substantial for us. The situation was, apart from looking at financials across the region, I spent a lot of time looking at Southeast Asia where we didn't have dedicated analysts in each country. And one of the countries I know uh, particularly well for a long time, or so I thought, was Indonesia. I was watching all sorts of M&A and special situations in Indonesia. I should step back a, a moment and tell you that Thaddeus was what we call a special situations fund, which meant that we weren't necessarily investing just on valuations. We weren't investing on the directionality of markets. We were trying to look for things that, that had really nothing to do with whether the market was going up or down very helpful for us in 2008, but only look at things like M&A, divestitures, restructurings, changes, changes in the capital structure, anything like that. So I had a long watch list of situations where you'd know that something was going to happen, and then you sit and watch and wait for it to play out. So one of the banks on my list was an Indonesian bank called BII, for Bank International Indonesia. This is, I see Andrew's nodding his head because he he will remember back to the Asian crisis of 97 when this was a notorious name. It was owned by the Wajaya family, part of the Sinar Mas group. And those guys owed a lot of money in a lot of different directions and they didn't pay any of it. BII went bust, got refloated by the government. I, I helped them back in, back in those days and it was a great success story. So by the time we got to 2008, you've got a very clean bank earning a healthy ROE. The only problem from an investment perspective was, of course, it was priced like a very clean uh, bank earning a healthy ROE. So it was, it was running about four times, 0.2 times book value and about 55 times trailing earnings, which I think, Andrew, you'll agree is a wee bit expensive exactly. uh, for a, a bog standard commercial bank. It was on the list because I thought in my cleverness, I said, I have, I have figured out that something is going to happen. So BII was controlled by Temasek, which is the uh, Singaporean Sovereign Wealth Fund, or I should say one of them. And Temasek also controlled via another one, of its, uh, another one of its arms, a second Indonesian bank, Bank Danamon. Lo and behold, the Indonesian government had come out with a regulation called a single point of presence rule. And they said, well, any investor can really, you can own an Indonesian bank, but you can only own one. And if you have more than one, you have to merge them or you have to sell one. I will, I will spare you the sort of laborious uh, uh, explanation of why we felt they wouldn't merge them. It was basically there are minority shareholders on both sides who wouldn't like devaluations. So we said, Temasek is going to have to sell one. We think it's going to be BII. But it's very expensive. So we don't get involved in these things until we're absolutely sure and again, that concept of certainty is what leads you into trouble. So we waited while a sale process was begun. We waited until an auction was conducted, and we have some good information on, on who bid at the auction. Really, they, uh, they paid a much higher price than we would have thought. They paid above five times book value, which, again, a very, very full price. Around the end of March 2008, Maybank, which is the largest bank in Malaysia, and controlled by the government there, 
came out and announced, they said, we have won the bid. We have an agreement to purchase the majority stake in BII from Temasek and their minority partners. And that's when I got to work because I said, okay, if you buy in Indonesia and many other countries, if you buy a majority stake in a listed company, you're required to make what's called a general offer, which means you have to offer to buy all the shares. Uh, and that's good for us because it means whatever we, we own turns into cash. So we began looking at the deal. I say we, although it was my responsibility to do this in my analysis, so I'm not trying to spread the blame. I looked at what are the conditions precedent for this to go forward. You know, we had to look at the Indonesian securities law. We had to talk to the regulator, then called Bapapam. Uh, and I got very, very close to Bapapam and to Pak Fuad, who was then running Bapapam. And he and I used to text each other fairly frequently as I had questions and I had comments and so forth. We got through that approval. But the key conditions precedent were that Indonesian Central Bank had to approve that Maybank was a fit and proper owner, that Bank Negara, which is the Malaysian Central Bank, had to approve the deal, and that the securities regulator in Indonesia, the BAPAPAM, had to approve the transaction. And then there was uh, an extraordinary general meeting of Maybank shareholders. And after that, you'd have the launch of a general offer, and it has to remain open for 30 to 90 days after which you get paid. So from my perspective, I'm looking at the timeline very closely because in event-driven investing, it's not so much knowing what's going to happen. And this is, this is a lesson that I should have known, and I thought I knew before this, but when people talk about event-driven investing in situations like this, they focus on how did you know what was going to happen? Because that's the sexy and interesting part, and it makes you sound smart. And what I always used to say to clients is knowing the future makes you feel really good and makes you feel incredibly you know, intelligent and on the ball. And the problem is it's almost completely uninvestable on its own. And what is a lot more prosaic but a lot more profitable is to take a bunch of things that everybody knows are going to happen at some point and figure out exactly when. Because your excess return is, is a fixed quantum that doesn't change no matter how long you're invested in the situation. And yet every additional day that you have a position on your book is added risk, you know, added idiosyncratic risk, more use of capital. So we focused really on narrowing down the time frame and trying to pick the right time to get in. So of course, even though I had a very good idea that this deal was going to happen and then that it was going to go through, we held off investing for a long time. We waited until the Malaysian Central Bank gave their approval. Now, of course, since Maybank is a government-owned bank, it wasn't a big risk in our mind, but it was something, okay, we, we waited for it to happen because it, it could affect the timing. We waited until the Indonesian Central Bank gave their approval. We waited until Bapapam had basically told us, well, you know, we have to have a general offer. That's, you know, that's, that's the only thing in the law to do. They could apply for a waiver, but we wouldn't grant one, and they haven't applied for a waiver. Then the meeting of shareholders of Maybank, of the acquirer, was scheduled. But the majority shareholder, which was government pension funds, had already come out and said, we are going to approve this deal. Mm. So you know that it's going to be approved by a majority of shareholders. And so I thought, all we have to do is get through the general offer and wait to get paid. And there's still about a 10% spread. And so we think it's, uh, it's going to take, you know, say 120 days, but on an annualized basis, 
this is a very good deal for us. And I thought, well done, Paul. You saw this coming. You were very, very smart and you got involved. We put a large position on our book and, and we sat there and it was a Friday afternoon and the deal was supposed to actually close on the Saturday morning. So, and in a situation like this, you know, where we have tens of millions of dollars at stake, obviously I was following it very closely. Uh, so I knew the bankers involved in the deal from both sides. Everyone flew to Singapore to, you know, the, the deal was already signed, but everyone flew to Singapore to make the final transfers and execute it. And I thought, well, we have very little risk here because it's one sovereign. It's the Singaporean sovereign government selling to the Malaysian sovereign government. Everything's been approved by all the regulatory authorities. For those people that don't know much about M&A, including myself, they, one of the questions I have is, wouldn't the price just, if this was a, an attractive deal, wouldn't the price just adjust pretty quickly with the market participants saying, well, we don't know exactly what this is going to be, but this is good news, therefore they push up the price? Yes, and it did. The price was already up about 30% when we got in. And so let me just ask you that next question is that when you were getting in, were you getting in for the concept that I'm going to play this M&A or were you saying play the price in relation to this M&A or were you saying I want to be an owner in this company in the future? Well, if there was going to be a general offer, I guess that you're really paying the, playing the price. Yeah, you wouldn't have a chance. Sometimes there's M&A, which is stock for stock. And you say, I want to own the merged company. So I want to get in beforehand. But in this case, it was cash for stock. Yeah. So you're not going to have the opportunity to own the company. And in fact, as long as more than 90% of the shareholders take up the offer, they can squeeze you out. So you can't hold on to your shares even if you don't tender. So your bet was the idea that the tender price would be higher than the market price or yes. whatever price. Okay, got it. We already knew the tender yep. because what triggered the tender was Temasek selling its shares to Maybank. And they're required to pay that price or they could pay higher. Okay. But they have to pay at least that price. Now, we didn't think they were going to pay any higher. And of course, in the end, when they came out with their tender documents, they were exactly the same price they paid GIC. That is our Temasek. That's a very, very good price. So we were happy in, in that. And you're right. As soon as that news comes out, the stock gaps up quite a bit. But there's always still that premium because say they're going to pay, they were going to pay 510 rupee, rupiah a share. You know, this, the price doesn't go to 510 today because first of all, there's still time. And most people don't know, do I, do I get my money in 90 days? Do I get it in 180 days? Do I get it in 270 days? What if it, what if it doesn't happen? You know, a lot of times there's risk in the deal and you need to spend, you know, as I, as I look back on the note, that I wrote, and it's, it's one of the things that's most useful about this process is always write everything down, what you're thinking when you do evaluation or when you get into something. Because human memory is not only fallible, but it has a very clear bias. And your memory exists to make you remember yourself as smarter than you were. So you will remember yourself as having known a lot more about the things you got into than you actually did. And then you go back and read it, and you say, oh wow, no, that's not what happened. That was, oh boy, we made, we made a lot of different mistakes here. Even, even if we made money, uh, we, we didn't make money because we were smart as we thought we were. So, and ladies and gentlemen, if you didn't write it down, you still got a chance to come on the show and we can show it and you can revisit it and then you really remember it. <laughs> All right, yeah, keep going. You, 
you may not be as honest if you didn't write it down. Exactly. I am there on a, on a Friday afternoon, and this is my largest position. It's the largest position in the firm. It's very close. And it, it's at this point, you know, we're looking at it only as a technical position. You know, we, we have, as far as we're concerned, the, the sale by Temasek to Maybank has already been signed taking place. So we have a legal right to a general offer at the same price. Yep. So looking at it and saying, well, very, very little risk. And in so fact, I'd say we, you're very relaxed in Singapore on that day. I was very relaxed. Well, I was still in Hong Kong, but I was monitoring okay. events yep. in Singapore yep. from, from afar. You know, in retrospect, I should have flown to Singapore and hung out there. But I thought, you know, this is great. On Monday, everything's going to be effective, but we, we no longer have any risk. We were buying further amounts of stock all along, just whenever anything would uh, would come up. My partner, Charles, who's our portfolio manager, would uh, would ask our dealer to, you know, to, to pick up some if we could if we could get a good price. Because a lot of people, you know, with the share price having moved up so much, many people just say, oh, look, I've, I've made all this money. You know, I made, I made a 50% profit already, and they're going to give me cash sooner or later, so let me take my money off the table and I want to find another stock that's going to double. I'm not interested in getting another, you know, 9.7% in 180 days and having to go through these things. All right. You've got us on the edge of a cliff. We've got a cliffhanger. We now got this. Are you, are you pausing for commercial now? Is I'm, that no, I, no way. I mean, I'm ready. I'm ready to hear. And I know the listeners are like, what the heck could go wrong? Well, you, you know, by virtue of my being here that, that it didn't go as per, as per plan, in the last 20 minutes of the trading day in Jakarta, the price started to go down. It started to go down a lot. And my partner called me over, you know, my dealer's hopping up and down. And he's saying, what's, what's going on here? I'm, I'm checking the wires. I'm checking. There's no news. I'm calling everybody. They're like, no, no, no. They're, everybody's, they've flown to Singapore. The money has already been moved from Malaysia to a Singaporean bank. So it's there in Singapore for the closing. It's going to happen. And so I didn't pay attention to the market signals, even though the market came off by 25% in the last 20 minutes of the day on almost no volume. So it's not like we could have sold any, right. even if we want to. Okay. So end of the day, you know, I'm down 30 or $40 million in mark to market. And, you know, it's not a good day, but I'm thinking tomorrow I'm going to be fine. Because Saturday morning was going to be the sign. Saturday morning is the, is the close. It becomes, it becomes irrevocable. The money's, the money's transferred. And then I have a legal right. Now, if I were dealing with an Indonesian buyer or an Indonesian company, I would say, all right, my legal right still has to be discounted quite a bit because as a boule, I'm not going to court in Indonesia suing somebody for money. That could take forever. But I figure Singapore and Malaysia, sovereign and sovereign, these guys are going to get it done. They can't hide. There are a lot of people more powerful than I am in, in this deal. So as soon as the four o'clock bell ticks. News comes out. Indonesia's implemented a new regulation that says, oh, if you still have the obligation to make a general offer on companies, but you can't delist them. And in fact, 20% of an Indonesian company has to remain listed, even if it's bought by a foreigner. 
So I'm calling my my good buddy Pak Fouad at Bapapam and saying, well, what does this mean? So they have to buy 100% and then they need to sell 20%? And he said, yeah, well, yeah, in the case of a general offer, that's what would happen. Now, when you're buying something at 5.3 times book, to then turn around and sell it, you're going to sell it at a much lower price. So it raises the cost of the deal. So I looked at that and I said, okay, but Maybank has already, you know, has already gotten their deal approved. So surely they won't be subject to this new rule, which hasn't even been promulgated yet in full form. You're just saying it's going to happen. And he said, yeah, no, they're going to be, they're going to be subject. You know, they could ask for a waiver, but they might not get it. Everyone's going to be subject. So I went home that night sort of churning with anxiety now, but I still thought tomorrow it's going to happen. Maybe Maybank gets screwed, but I don't get screwed. And the next day, money did not change hands. And I said, what happened? And it turns out that Bank Nagara, the Malaysian Central Bank, had retroactively withdrawn their approval of the transaction. I have never seen something like that happen. I didn't know whether it was possible. On the other hand, I guess if you're a Malaysian state-owned bank and you ask your Malaysian state central bank for something to happen, you have a good chance of getting, of getting what you want. So all of a sudden, there is no deal. There is no mandatory general offer. And the price is in free fall. So this is on Monday. Yeah, it's actually it's actually it's actually still over the for the weekend. Okay, so uh, free, you're, you're talking about the free fall on Friday. Okay, got it. Yep. Yeah. Well, well, you you had a Friday close down more than twenty five percent, and in the gray market, it's looking as though it's going to fall a further twenty five or thirty percent. Now, this is the largest position in my fund, so I'm I'm toting up the loss on Friday, and I'm saying assuming we can get out, which is not a great assumption it's gonna cost us 7% to the fund, which is not a good monthly number, even if there was nothing else going on in the fund that month. And I said, people are going to kill us. Yeah. And that's it. You know, if you, uh, if you remember that scene in Red October, where they realize that the torpedo they've, uh, they've launched with no proximity fuse has turned around back on them, it was something like that. And, you know, my, my partners and colleagues were very nice and none of, none of them actually said out loud, you idiot, you've killed us. But I'm sure they were all thinking it because I know I know I was. Yeah. All right. So, so wrap, now you got to wrap this up and tell us how did this end? Through no fault of my own, the deal came back together late Sunday night. The three governments got together and they worked it out. I suspect Tomasek sent some money to somebody in Indonesia. That is. That's a pure hypothetical and not anything uh, legally actionable. But whatever they did, whatever kind of juice they used, the deal was put back together on Sunday, money changed hands, and we were subject once again to a general offer and a legal requirement that we would get 510. However, Monday and Tuesday were Indonesian trading holidays. <laughs> Just to raise the suspense. And Tuesday was the end of the month. So I had to show that number to uh, all my investors anyway. As an unrealized and, loss. And yeah, and call them and say, oh, by the way, the deal is already unconditional and it all comes back next month. But 
here's what I was doing and here's the risk that I took, how I almost got all you guys in trouble. That was not a good weekend. I can imagine. <laughs> okay, so then when the market opened in Indonesia, what happened to the share price? When the market opened on Wednesday, yep. first, first of the month, after that long sort of uh, uh, four-day four day market, uh, market holiday, uh, the, the share price went sort of back up almost to where it had been. The, the spread was wider, was wider than it had been because people said, well, hey, we thought it was, we thought it was a done deal before and we had a 10% spread. Now maybe we'll have a 15% spread. But in fact, the general offer went through. Maybank paid us money. We got our got our cash a couple of a couple of months later, and and we got out with uh, with a small profit. But that does not make it a good trade. Just because you wound up by sheer dumb luck making making money sticks in my head as as not it's not the worst percentage loss even at the bottom that I ever had. But it's the only time that I ever put the place I worked for in real existential danger. We're running out of time, so I want you to give us, this is gonna be a challenge, in one sentence, you know, what did you learn from this story and what one action could an investor take to avoid such a situation, or, or is there? A couple of quick things. The first is do not get complacent. Nothing is ever done until it's done. The second big thing is to say markets are discontinuous. And the idea that if something goes wrong, you can get out does not always apply. Even if I paid attention, and the third thing I would say is always watch the market. If the market sells off 25% in 20 minutes, someone knows something more than you do. You should consider getting out no matter what, not necessarily saying that other people are smarter than you are, but if you don't know why the market is behaving the way it is, then it means you, you don't know enough to trade the stock and you should always get out even if you lose money. But the overriding thing, putting those three things together, you know, I could say that the real lesson is never bet the firm. I have a lot of experience with distressed financials, and, and now I know it from the other side as well. People don't think they're betting the firm. Nobody ever gets up in the morning and says, well, you know what? I'm, I'm going to bet the firm today on this going wrong. If you, look at, if you look at places like Lehman Brothers or Bear Stearns or Citibank or Deutsche Bank, none of these guys got up and said, oh, you know what? I'm bored, but I can roll double sixes four times in a row. And if not, well, you know, we'll lose the firm. They make very clear and in their minds, rational decisions, but they don't take into account the, the real risks of getting out of a position, which are things like discontinuous markets, lack of liquidity, regulatory sanctions, making things impossible. And so we had to go back and really retool our risk management process for looking at deals of this kind, such that no matter what happened, we were never exposed to losing seven or eight percent of the portfolio again. <laughs> because we realized after this, you know, you don't know what your risk tolerance is really until you're past it. And then you say, oh yeah, that's where it was back there. We might have said that we had risk tolerance for a six, <laughs> seven, eight percent loss in the worst case scenario. I, I think if you asked us that, we might have we might have marked that down on a sheet of paper, but not until it actually happens. Do you say, no, actually, we don't have that risk tolerance, and we need to make sure that we're not putting more than 2% at risk no matter what happens. Perfect. Oh, my God, what a story. Well, we're out of time, but I'm going to tell a fast, fast story that happened to me when I was an 18-year-old kid. A guy wanted to buy my motorcycle, 
And I said, okay, I'll sell it, but you've got to give me a check. I'm going to go down to the bank and you got to come with me. And when we go to the bank, I'm going to get the cash from the check. And then, then I'll sign over a title to the motorcycle. This happened, happened in my hometown of Hudson, Ohio. And uh, Scott Hutchison actually was named the guy. And then what happened was deal was done. I had the cash in my hand that day. At the end of the day, we left and all that. At the end of the day, I got a phone call from the bank and they said, you need to bring that cash back. I said, what? They said the, the, the payment, the check has been stopped by the guy's mother or whatever. And we want you to bring the money back. And I didn't know about how that could work, but I went down to the bank and I gave him the money back. But of course, I didn't get the title back. And then I eventually fought this guy for a long time until we, we had to go to court. And eventually I won a case. And basically, at the end of that, it's like, okay, here's your motorcycle. <laughs> but the answer is that even when the cash is in the bank, sometimes it can unravel. And that's the lesson I learned from that. So, you know, it applies in Indonesia, it applies in Ohio, both very dodgy places. There you go. Well, listen, this is another great story of loss audience to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we wrap up, Paul, thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Always talk about your losers because you don't learn anything from winning. Amen. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.